Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship both in person now and online. So check them all out at tkex.org. Got a special show today with a client who I've been working with for quite some months now, working with persisting pain. He is a mathematical genius, amazing popper, dancer, extraordinaire isolation king zane thank you so much for for joining us thank you for the generous intro i'm happy to be here and uh for those who don't know popping is a hip-hop style but we won't get into the details of that Uh, but it's it's quite a physical style and our bodies are very important when dancing and expressing ourselves and pain freaking sucks and i was interested in getting more of the lived experience of pain for us clinicians to learn a bit more how it is and empathize with the humans that we interact with and help. So Zane, tell us what's your story. Yeah, sweet. Thanks. I'm Zane. I'm 22 years old now and I'm a dancer. Um, As Daniel said, I mainly traverse the style of popping. Um, That's been something I've been doing for gosh, number of years now. So it's been a consistently big part of my life, I'd say. Alongside that, I just finished my undergrad in mathematics and statistics. Hence, it's the comment, I don't know about mathematical genius, but you know. Um, alongside dance, I do also like to weight train. That's, that's something that I also enjoy. I think when I started to take dance more seriously, I'd say about maybe four years ago, so when I was around 18, that's when physical pain really started to ramp up. So as training got more intense, my pain started to grow more intense. Starts off with like ankle injury, then it slowly gravitates to knees and hips and wrists and elbows and shoulders and So for the past four years, alongside dance, I've also been traveling in and out of a lot of medical institutions, um, trying to get clarity on what the hell is going on. Um, Even recently, I'd say past four months, been trying to navigate a flare up in my lower back. So I'd, I'd say, my story is is about navigating, you know, my dance and my love for dance, but at the same time trying to understand or come to terms with the consistent pain that that continually crops up. Making sense of the experience of pain in four years is a very, very long time. I imagine mm-hmm. that took you out of your meaningful activities and stopped you made it very, very difficult to do the things that matter most to you? For sure. For months at a time, you know, like multiple months out, come back, multiple months out again, and the cycle continues. So it's it's been very rewarding getting into dance, but also very frustrating. And you mentioned you do enjoy some resistance training. So tell us more about that journey. What got you started in weight training? After a certain point, um, after multiple injuries from the waist down, 
say the ankles and the knees and the hips, a lot of instability there. My initial thinking was, all right, maybe let's try to get some, get some strength around, around these joints, get them used to kinds of loads that I'm not familiar with. So I think that started maybe, I'd say last year, um, 2020 is when I tried to incorporate big three movements, squat, bench, deadlift, put on a bit of weight, just trying to build more strength around the joints. Um, so it was mostly a form of activity that I was hoping would sustain and help my dance. But it's also enjoyable in and of itself. So it's also been a fun area of exploration for me. Yeah, and complementing your, your dance training as well. Yeah, complementing. Um, sometimes if I push it too far, it might detract, but that's a whole other story. And tell us a little more when you mentioned that you were starting to take dance a bit more seriously, what had kind of changed and, and tell us a bit more about the onset of the, the flare-ups and the, the pain setbacks. When you come to Sydney, uh, I moved to Sydney in 2018, um, and you meet the people who dance here, they spend multiple hours a day training. They're out outside or in the studio doing drills, spending their entire nights in the studio. It's a daily thing, or not even a daily thing. It's, it's a lifestyle thing. So when I moved to Sydney, I saw that and I thought, damn, you know, I should be incorporating this more and more into my life. So I started to ramp up the hours, I guess. Um, I started to partake in more competitions and tournaments and events that require responsibility, require training, require getting together with people and making choreographies and, and so on. So the hours ramped up, but also the intensity of training ramped up. Um, because I was around people who were a lot more serious. Before moving to Sydney, I was mostly just exploring dance on my own. So I never had really a conception of what a serious dancer looked like. So mainly it's about, it's about the hours, it's about the dedication, it's about the day in, day out attempts to grow your style. And so as that started to become more and more a part of my life, that's when things really started to flare up. You'd moved from Wollongong? From, was it? from Wollongong, yes, yes. And into a new context where everyone around you was a bit more competitive and they spent more time with dance. So you were surrounded by a different social context and examples and main people in the scene? Yeah, yeah. Um, which isn't to say that Wollongong actually has a, very, has a very growing scene, but I, I was young and I wasn't really a part of that. But yes, in, in Sydney, it's definitely more pervasive. If you just begin to explore the dance scene, you will encounter someone who is very serious invariably. So definitely different social contexts, which kind of alerted me to how much work I still have to put in, I'd say. And in terms of a timeline, what were the first few pain episodes and, and injuries and what did you do? Who did you see for help? 2018, I'd say. Um, that was my first year of uni, first time moving to Sydney. That's when I was like, damn, so many dancers, let's dance all the time. Um, 
I first had troubles with my ankles. Um, this was during a group tournament known as Popping Nation, where you get together with a bunch of people and you make choreographies and you battle. And so it's a it's like a three month event, um, continual weekly sessions, often going into the night. That gave my ankle a lot of grief. Dance, fairly difficult uh, in the sense that I was losing confidence in my leg work, my dance from the waist down. I was finding it hard to stay stable. That started to ramp up more and more. But in the second half of 2018, I didn't really see anybody for it. To me, it was just, okay, do some rest or just put ice on it. Or I was just kind of using my intuition in order to navigate what was going on. I think part of that was also I didn't have the resources or the know-how to find a physio and to seek out someone I can trust. And it just seemed like a whole world that I really didn't want to tap into. But then the year after is when the ankle started to get worse. I actually had kind of like an acute injury. Um, I was training and then as I was going home um, after finishing training, I found I couldn't walk. And so that was when I was like, crap, I should probably see someone. I saw just a regular physio in the city. I was given exercises, rehab, kind of progress reports, et cetera, et cetera. And that helped. I wouldn't say it didn't help, but I was also dancing a lot less and I was a lot less happy first half of 2019 I was barely dancing and that was that was tough it was rough it was mostly just do these exercises and maybe do 20 minutes of dance but then sit down ice it etc etc that was the first injury I'd say moving on from that other things started to flare up one that comes to my mind immediately is my arms my shoulder down to the wrist I'm not sure exactly about the time. It was definitely after 2019 when I started to get it, these radiating pains from the shoulder down to the wrist. Very difficult to move my arms. Very difficult to do drills that are required for popping. That was that. That also took a lot out of me. And in order to come to terms with what that was about, I went to GPs. And I also went to neurologists and so on. I was getting a lot of conflicting diagnoses about that. Initially, I was diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome, but then I went to follow up on that, and that wasn't that wasn't the case. Apparently, I was also diagnosed with a fair amount of nerve issues in my shoulder. I was prescribed an injection of some kind. Well, all those things just kind of made me more confused. I was prescribed a lot of rest when these things flare up, but that wasn't helping either. Uh, so after the ankle, I'd say the arms started to give me a lot of grief. And that, that's that's been a fairly constant thing. I mean, even with my work with you, I've had problems with my shoulders and my, and my arms. Um, so that's still something I'm trying to navigate. Most recently has been my lower back. Um, that came out of the blue, I'd say about three, four months ago. 
and I'm still still trying to navigate that as well. That's been something that's to me has been the most tough up until now, especially because of how confounding it is, how confusing it is, and how persistent it is. But I've been working with you on that. I've been working with people at Adonis, the gym I go to. So that's that's been great. I've had a lot more resources to kind of think about these things more recently. And how did you make sense of your ankle kind of injury and the and even now the upper arm? The ankle, it was something about so I was told something about wear and tear and then a overstraining or a hyper movement of some kind that my ankle could not sustain. In terms of the shoulder, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't I haven't really given that a label or a diagnosis or a story that makes sense to me. None of the stories that I was given in the past are particularly helpful. Right now it's to me, a little enigmatic, and I've kind of just shelved it, to be honest. And I'm mostly tending to my lower back. And you mentioned that you had a few conflicting uh, messages. Was that mostly with the arm and the shoulder pain? Yeah, yeah. Long story short, a GP gave it a diagnosis specialist gave it a completely different diagnosis. GP then contested the diagnosis of the specialist. And I was just caught in the middle, like, well, I just want to pop and my wrists hurt and my shoulder hurts. So what do I do? Something I was given some kind of an arm guard. And that was the, the end of it. You kind of whip that out when you're sleeping. So your wrist is not in a strange position. And you wake up and you rest and if you're in pain you rest and that was the end of it for my arms essentially that's the theme that i'm hearing mostly with how to kind of rehab or treat the the symptoms it's very much a rest you mentioned with the ankle you were given a limitation and you had to cut down on your dancing and with the arm as well would you say that's one of the overarching responses, messages? 100%, 100%. So something's wrong, uh, you wait until something is no longer wrong. Or you wait and kind of do these things that will help the process along. And then you come out of this waiting and everything's fine. And if it happens again, well, you go back to your hibernation, etc., And it becomes a, a vicious cycle, or at least in my experience, it has become a vicious cycle. Of, of injury and rest because then you would try to go back into your activities and what would happen it's the confidence for me the confidence is not there when i went back into dance in 2019 after the ankle there was so much apprehension and you can see it in the footage even of the, the dance i was doing just completely unwilling to move the lower half of the body completely unwilling to explore positions that are deemed dangerous or risky, anything of the sort. 
And that confidence, that lack of confidence uh, fueled the pain. I was unwilling to explore it and therefore it just got worse and worse, less and less stable. Um, and to me, stability is very much tied to confidence as well. And what helped you get back into dance following predominantly the, the ankle and, and the arms? How do you, how did you manage to return to those activities and build some confidence with the pain episodes? It's a very confusing story. What I did was I just started dancing more. Um, after the ankle, you know, I was given the green light by the physio. He said, you're doing well. And so I started dancing more. Lo and behold, the ankle wasn't as bad as it was as when I was resting with the shoulder. I just gave up on the mutually conflicting diagnoses and I just went back to dancing. If things were in pain, I would, I would do exercises that nourish me and that I enjoy doing. But I was still dancing. Um, and again, lo and behold, my shoulders weren't as bad. Um, or at least I was still finding room for exploration um, within the pain. So the confidence came back. Uh, so it was very much just a process of attempting to do the things that I love to do within the spaces that have been created with the pain. And that's when things became, I want to say more tolerable because I was not calling it quits whenever something cropped up. The thing there is the, what I'm hearing is you were given permission to move again, to go back into that activities. And, and it was through the experience of gradually experiencing that you could dance again with some pain and less of maybe it's the, like the opposite message that you received of avoidance and rest that's when you actually got back into full recovery or towards much closer to the kind of activities that you want to be doing and functional goals? Exactly, exactly. I think it was about, and working with you made it a lot more, more concrete, but it was about understanding the uncertainty that comes with movement and dance, that a, a pain, or a flare-up is not necessarily a, a reason to stop, not necessarily a reason to stop. Um, I wouldn't say it's never a reason to stop, certainly not, um, but not necessarily a reason to stop. And there is still room to create and explore with the pain that you have. If every time pain meant that you needed to stop, then most of us would be doing nothing. Opening that up for me has been great. It's been, it's been very freeing to know that, okay, I've got XYZ flare up. Well, what can I do with the resources I have today? I'm still going to do the things that I really enjoy doing. That's not off the table. I want to keep that on the table as long as possible and as often as possible. So what, what do I do rather than 
just saying, oh, these movements are causing your pain, therefore you should stop these movements. Interesting. So it's not maybe drawing a direct causal link between the movements and your pain and dancing around the tolerance levels, which can be very different day by day and depending on the context to still do all those activities in maybe some different ways, adapting, modifying some of the plan. Yeah, exactly. And when you mentioned this idea of a, a causal link between the movement and the pain, I think doing that can become very fallacious. And the reason behind that is some of these movements, if you stop doing them, will cause other kinds of pain, emotional pain. If, if you abandon the arts or the movement patterns that give you nourishment, then that is a kind of pain. Um, and therefore, they, should, they are still important for the maintenance of your emotional pain, or at least for me, dance is a way to maintain and nourish my emotions. Um, and that, that's not talked about as much, I guess, the link between the physical and the emotional. Too often when we draw causal links, we kind of just detach the physical from everything else and uh, we compartmentalize, you know, X pain is caused by Y movements. So sever that link and you're fine. Something of the sort. So in response to all of that, I guess, understanding that these things are a lot more holistic than at first presumed. It's also can be a lot more confusing, but in, in that sense, it's also, um, it can be a lot more freeing rather than trying to pin it down all the time. Yeah, I think we can get stuck on finding out the cause so they can find that solution. Very much, a, again, a causal direct link. So then we can get rid of the symptoms. Um, and that's often the first step. I guess we've been taught that way. And there's lots of uh, the, the body is a machine. We just have to fix a certain part like a mechanic. And then that's when it will get rid of the symptoms. Yeah, uh, not even just fix, but uh, you know, this desire to master our bodies or as clinicians to master the body of the patient by attaching to them a diagnosis or a, some kind of a label or some kind of a set of symptoms that can be awfully reductive. Um, it's, it's a tool to help understand the patient or to help understand yourself. Um, I'm not saying that labels don't have places, but labels are also reductions. Um, and it comes from a desire to have certainty over things that aren't that certain, especially things like pain um, and doubly so for things like chronic pain. So a lot of medical institutions and other institutions always come at it with this idea of attempting to master whatever it is that is in front of you, to have a dominion over it, to have more knowledge about it than the person in front of you, um, and to then speak from your pedestal and prescribe and proselytize. But in many ways that can be incredibly harmful. And I experienced only a little bit of that, but I know that a lot of 
other people experience that to much greater extents. And when clinicians assume that the tools and methodologies they have is all there is to it. Yeah, it's uh, very much the power imbalance is important in working with humans. I feel like even from my own personal experience in the medical system, being treated like a number or being treated like my body part as opposed to the, the human is still a, a pervasive issue in, in our systems, unfortunately. And, and I feel like it's getting a bit better, but I think it's still important for us as clinicians to know that you, for instance, don't have a diagnosis and you probably don't have a specific diagnosis for your arm, shoulder pain. There might be a few stories that you've been told. So you're right now dancing with some uncertainty. How is that for you as, a, as the person, as a human? It's got elements of freedom, but also elements of grief. And that, that's the double-edged sword when it comes to diagnoses. Diagnoses can afford a great deal of comfort and safety. Um, and in that sense, they can be very useful and helpful. So not having a diagnosis for me sometimes is a bit worrying in the sense that if something flares up, I don't have a narrative or framework to then attempt to understand what happened or what it is that I might be able to do. But at the same time, the lack of a diagnosis makes me feel less broken. It gives me more agency to feel out what is going on um, and to trust myself with certain kinds of movements that might have been pulled off the table if a diagnosis were attached to it. So there are two elements to that. that there's this idea that it's worrying, but then there's also this idea that gives me a kind of agency that I didn't have before when I was given diagnoses. I feel like for many cases, having some kind of way of making sense of the experience is, is needed. And importantly, having the tools to handle those flare-ups when they do occur with or without a diagnosis. I think you have a certain skill sets and understandings and ways to navigate, to move around those flare-ups. And I think we can get caught into the fixing mindset of find the diagnosis first and then solve the problem and then get back into the activity. So I feel like the process has changed a little bit in your experience. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not stop everything, drop everything when pain arises, recognize what's going on, give a label to it, understand that label, and then launch back in. No, all, all the things are occurring at once. And that's, that's the tough part of, I imagine, being a clinician. There's a lot of complexity to hold. On the one hand, a desire to make the patient comfortable by giving them some kind of a narrative to understand, but on the other hand, not trying to reduce them to the diagnosis or not trying to make them stop their lives before something is found out. So all of these things kind of work in tandem 
And for me, it just became a way of letting them work together without one having precedence over the other, um, without one kind of dominating the other. Because other, if that's the case, for me, life kind of becomes hard to live when you're, you're constantly waiting for certainty or uh, a label from someone who knows more than you. Love all these themes of we can work with that uncertainty and you can still do those movements that are nourishing to you. And you mentioned that word a few times. Tell us a bit more. What, what do you mean by nourishing? Yeah, I use the word nourishing because I, it's an intensely personal word. Um, and I, I'm just weary of making my movements somehow the way to move. People have different experiences and many people have pain that are more, a lot more difficult to handle than things that I've experienced. So what might be nourishing for them is probably completely different or completely smaller in scale or intensity than what I'm used to. So this idea of nourishment is looking for what gives you life within these spaces of pain and illness and grief, even that's related to all of that. What kinds of movements give you life? And I use nourishment because everyone can ask that question themselves and find their own means of vitality, wherever that might be. You also, I feel like it's a, an in, very much a principle used in the health at every size, the intuitive eating principles space of rather than using exercise as a punishment, using it as nourishing the body and the mind and the whole, the human. I would go further and say that when we use health at every size, we should also understand that health as a concept is also completely different from individual to individual and from culture to culture. Um, what one culture might view as health might prioritize other kinds of movement. Maybe it's more about community and ritual and spirituality that, that can afford a kind of health that in our culture is not so common. We prioritize things like physical movements. So even when we talk about health at every size, we should also understand the relativity of health and the cultural and social factors that play into that as well. And you're speaking as though you know about some systems theory. I feel like your background understanding of dynamic, complex mathematical theories may, may or may not play a role in this? Um, I wouldn't say mathematical. Mm. Uh, I would say that, well, I mean, I'm a statistics major. I would say some of them are the last people that you want to talk to about not reducing things to numbers and the quantitative. But I am an avid reader of history. I'm hoping to move into history. And when you read about history, you realize how awfully messy all of these things are. Um, and not only messy, but also that none of this is set in stone. A lot of the concepts we use and the, the frameworks we have, they're historical and they're built out over time. And when you understand that they're historical, 
you also know that it didn't necessarily have to be this way, that there are other frameworks and ways of approaching problems that could have come out, but they didn't for various reasons. And often those reasons are related to things like power imbalances, which is what you mentioned earlier. So some ways of approaching the problem become more common than other ways of approaching the problem. And then we just assume that this is natural. It has to be this way. Um, so I'm not sure about systems in terms of the mathematical idea of systems theory, but I do think it's important to recognize how historical what these ideas are, how rooted they are in us in stories from the past that could have been otherwise. Yeah, super interesting how that can impact the, the present as well. So our own prior experiences and the meaning that we attach and how society and culture views pain and the body and injuries and how people around us respond to our pain. And I wanted to, to talk a little bit about some of those messages. Looking back at your experience, what have been, maybe if we focus on the most helpful messages that you have received in the professional and the social spheres, what have been the most helpful messages so far? A few things I'd say, and I, I think it mostly came out when I was working with you. And it's the theme that's been on the, at the forefront for most of this talk, this idea of uncertainty, that a lot of pain is not necessarily a puzzle to just be arranged and then understood and therefore shelved as something done. Uh, it's not really a puzzle. It's more, it can be a mystery. It can be incredibly confusing. And for that reason, because of its confusing element, it can also be associated with a fair amount of grief. And so this idea that pain is uncertain is one of the more helpful things that I've encountered. And the idea of grief is also something that I've been told or I've learned from you and from others that, you know, it's okay to grieve this pain. It's okay to feel terrible about the fact that this is happening. Often when we approach pain in terms of a puzzle to be fixed, there's no room for feeling sad about it. It's kind of, no, we'll get you sorted out and you'll be back on track. And it's a constant optimism about pain. But there's a, there's a dark element to pain. And because it's confusing, it can derail things that we previously had planned. So there is a sadness associated with it. And it's okay to feel that sadness. It's okay to feel the nervousness that comes with trying to come back after six months of not dancing and feeling like your ankle is shot. It's okay to feel that. It's important to feel that because the pain is telling you something and you should listen to it. So this idea of uncertainty and grief and what relates to that is that pain is trying to teach you something uh, and it may not speak very clearly. Um, it may be a little inscrutable, but if you listen to it carefully, you might learn a bit more about yourself and also about the things around you. So those three things have been very helpful as ideas that I've kind of been thinking with 
and it comes from work with you, uh, work with Adonis, the gym I go to, also a couple of books I've read recently, and, and so on. With those take-home points, how has that impacted what you do when you do experience a, a setback because you, you are going through a back pain flare-up? What are you doing now with that? We've kind of acknowledged and normalized and validated that, that it is very, there is very much a grieving process involved and it is okay to feel crap about having pain. How has that impacted what you do? My recent injury has been an injury that came from weight training. And when that happened, I initially was thinking about all these new concepts around pain that I've been grappling with. And my very first reaction was, okay, this is a learning curve. I'll take it in stride. I didn't allow myself, even a few months ago, the space to feel upset about it. Because um, I thought, okay, I've explored pain, therefore I shouldn't, you know, this is going to happen. It's invariable, yada, yada, yada. I shouldn't feel sad about it. But it lingered. And I eventually realized that I was bottling the grief associated with it up. And one day I recognized, you know, I was affirming that it's important to grieve, but I wasn't actually doing it. And so one day I, I sat down and I just said, damn, this really sucks. You know, I, I wasn't expecting this. I was making good progress in the gym. I was working with a coach. My, my lifts are going up. And now I feel like I'm back to the start. And not only back to the start, but back to the start with a great deal more pain. And I acknowledged it. I looked around and said, this is, this is not fun. I don't like that this is happening. And when I said that, that's when things started to clear up a bit. Um, I, I gave myself the space to say that pain sucks. That was very freeing. It's not something I've done much before. And it's not something that we're very comfortable with. Just being open to someone else coming and saying, I'm in pain and everything sucks. And um, I don't want, don't want you to tell me to look on the bright side. I don't want you to tell me that it'll be all okay if I did X, Y, Z exercise. I just want you to know that this is awful. That's yeah. part of it, yeah. Working alongside that sadness and allowing yourself to feel the grieving. Exactly. Um, and so what came out of that is, with working with you, okay, this is making me upset. A lot of the movements that I've been enjoying have now become incredibly painful and also nerve wracking and just sad to see that all of the weights have taken a huge dip. So what comes out of that? Well, how do we bring back the fun and the confidence? This pain is incredibly uncertain. And this pain is showing up whenever you feel lack of confidence or when you feel nervous. What can we do in these 
grief-stricken, uncertain spaces. Well, nourishment is important to me. So what, what nourishes me? And so what changed from this year to previous years is recognizing the space that's been created with pain and attempting to really look around and see what's going on firstly and acknowledge that and then seeing where the wiggle room is to, to do things that I still love doing. This is a uh, freaking awesome. And I will, I, if my mic was less expensive, I would be dropping it every time that I was to ask a new question <laughs> because this is like golden wisdom. Um, and this is important as well that I've also learned a lot from you in the process. It's very much a reciprocal coaching relationship. I have not kind of, I, I hope I haven't communicated in a very much a paternal authoritarian. You need to manage your loads better, bro. And that's it. That's the fix. Like, duh, you idiot. Why didn't you do that? Um, Cause yeah, the reality is that you are still experiencing pain and uh, a lot of clinicians, we are taught to take away that pain and it's our role to take away that, that pain. And if we don't reduce your pain, we're failing. But what would you say to that? I think the first thing to recognize as a clinician is that when you're thinking in this way of trying to fix and take away and diagnose, that it's not your fault. If we take the idea of system seriously and we take the idea of history seriously these larger frameworks have an impact on all of the ways we think and so a clinician who's trying to change discourses around pain has an uphill battle they're taught to think these things not only that but their institutions are built on these kinds of philosophies so it becomes very difficult to kind of unlearn these things. And so the first thing I would say is to affirm that you are coming from an institution that very much peddles this. And institutions have a very big impact on the ways we think. That needs to be affirmed from the outset. Um, otherwise, we kind of might view it as an individualistic crusade. And it's, it doesn't work like that. The second thing I would say is coming back to this idea of space is you're in this space where everyone talks about pain like this, where nobody wants to talk about it at the same time. It's, it's hidden, but prevalent. Everyone has it, but we all try to get rid of it. This kind of confinement, how can clinicians find the wiggle room there to then create these dynamics where no, I don't want to get rid of your pain. You don't need to get rid of this pain. You can still move with this pain. What can you do to create that wiggle room in, in the institutions that, you're, that you've learned from and that you still traverse all the time? Finding ways to adapt and modify and work with the suffering according to the individual and what they find meaningful and nourishing according to their values rather than getting stuck in trying to solve that puzzle that someone presents with. 
Yes, and that that's an uncertain process. So if clinicians can be okay being vulnerable, or to really learn how to be vulnerable, that would be great. Because, you know, when you assume you have all the answers, that re removes the vulnerability. You, they come to you and you're like, okay, tick, 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 this is what's wrong. I feel good that I know stuff and I've helped them. And it comes from a good place. But willing to, clinicians should be willing to not know, or they should constantly recognize that the person who comes through the door is an enigma to them. And that they're, as clinicians, walking alongside them through this uncertainty, rather than proselytizing from, from above. So willing to go into the depths with the patient and with all the uncertainty that entails and all the vulnerability that entails is very important for a clinician willing to cultivate a serious relationship with a patient who's going through pain. The ability and the capacity to be okay with maybe grieving alongside the person, allowing for that grieving to happen, creating that context and that safe space for this process to occur. And in that process, normalize some of the grieving as well as allow the person to discover the tools and the ways to create their own wiggle room outside of the clinic space in their lives to get back into those meaningful activities and movements and the things that they wanna be doing. Exactly, exactly. And everything you said is an incredibly messy process. There's no, there's no blueprint for that. Uh, every process will differ from person to person. So meeting them where they're at and walking alongside them with the continual recognition that, okay, I don't know from the outset where this is going to lead. I don't know for certain. So as soon as you start to become certain, you, you've lost the connection. I feel like that's uh, very much still... Uh very difficult to grasp that being comfortable with not knowing the answer. A lot of the uh, social media or marketing messages out there and Googling low back pain fix, there's still a, very much a, a thing in our society. So it's, it's very difficult. It's a challenge. Incredibly difficult. And that's, that's comes back to what I alluded to earlier that if you want to, if you approach it this way, it's not necessarily your fault We're we're inundated with information that revolves around fixing. And it's not only fixing, but quick fixing as well. And I'm just mindful if there's anything else that we've missed, any other last pieces of advice for, for clinicians or is this gold enough as it is, but just making sure I haven't missed anything. I think that comes down to kind of deep listening to the patient and deep listening to the context that they're bringing, the worlds that they're bringing. And part of deep listening is recognizing that your understanding of them is always going to be partial and provisional. It's never going to be the full picture. And therefore, you cannot know this patient in entirety, regardless of how many times they visit you. There's always going to be some kind of opaque quality to it. And being able to understand that and still listen 
without thinking about what to say after, without thinking about the theory you learned in second year that tells you about this and that. Really being present and listening to them as they are, while also knowing that you don't know kind of TLDR. It's, yes, absolutely. Being curious and staying humble that we don't know everything there is to know about a human, a patient. Zane, this has been super helpful and there's been a lot of useful take-homes for clinicians. If anyone is interested in finding out a bit more about your dance journey slash lifting journey, or if they have any questions, if, if you're comfortable with people reaching out to you, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram. It's at my full name without the hyphen. Yeah, you can, you're, you're welcome to reach out to me if you have questions or you just want to connect. I'm certainly open for that. Cool, I'll put a link in the description. And again, we really, really, really value that lived experience and we need more stories like yours because you're setting an example and really providing that, that two-way interaction and the importance of being vulnerable, of listening, all the, the soft skills that are actually pretty damn hard and not taught enough. So Zane, been an absolute pleasure and looking forward to, to helping you on your journey and seeing where this journey takes you. Thank you so much. Grateful for you to have me on. Appreciate it.